0: Well, good morning. Uh, It's a pleasure to be with you all this morning. Um, You know, as you said, my name is Terry Irwin, and I'm one of the pastoral interns at UBC. Uh, I know the other guys have just been tremendously blessed uh, to be with you guys. And in the same way, I'm I'm really thankful that I get the privilege of gathering with you this morning and even more thankful that I get to bring the word to you this morning. Um, So with that, uh, would you bow your heads, heads with me as we pray? Father, we come to you this morning, and as we gather together here to hear your word this morning, we pray that you would open our eyes, Lord, and and that you would speak to us. And Father, as you speak, I pray that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear your word this morning. Father, we pray that as you allow us to see the, the wonderful things that are contained in your word, Father, that we would be transformed by these things. And Father, I pray that that transformation would allow us to live lives that honor and glorify you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you've been uh, with us the last few weeks, or I say with the other interns, because this is my first week, um, you know we've been going through 1 Peter. Uh, One of our our desires, uh, just kind of being here with you, is just to walk through a book of the Bible with you. We have five chapters in 1 Peter. There's five of us. so. Uh, we're, we're just going to walk through that, and as you, if you were with us, you know, we we saw two weeks ago, um, in First Peter, Peter opens his letter. If you'll remember, by reminding us of our great salvation, while also showing us how our secure hope of salvation leads us to live holy and obedient lives to God. And then last week, uh, Daniel helped us walk through chapter two, and there we saw Peter kind of continue to unpack this idea of what it looks like to live holy lives for God. And uh, as we came to the end of chapter 2, you know we saw that really this call to live a holy life um, in light of our salvation really looks like uh, a call to honor others, if you'll remember that. So now as we come to chapter 3 this morning, uh, we're going to see Peter continue this idea of glorifying God by living holy lives as we honor others. Now before we g- begin, uh, let me just say a word about, about this text. Um, I think more than probably any of the other chapters in this book, um, this, this chapter is both long and potentially very challenging. I don't know if some of you guys uh, read it this, this week. I know we talked, you said you had. Um, and I, I would just encourage you, that's a good habit, a good thing to get in the habit of doing. I don't know. You know, If you know what the text is going to be, it's a, just a great thing to let that you know, guide your devotional throughout the week uh, and just prepare your hearts to, to really think about the text you know, as, as we continue to preach through it. I know Logan's going to be doing uh, uh, preaching next week through chapter four, so I would just encourage you this week even just to continue reading through chapter four. Um, but if you've read through this, this chapter, you know that this is, like I said, there's a lot of challenging statements here. Um, but uh, even though we could get into a lot of these statements, uh, just given the time and, and really the aim of what we want to do this morning, um, what I'd like you to do is if, as we're kind of going through it, if you think of things in this text that, you know, you really have some questions about or you want to think through some more, I'll just keep those in mind and then, uh, you know, Lord willing, when we gather again tonight, um, we can kind of get into some of that more and, and it's part of my goal tonight to just maybe open that up to some questions and answers because, you know, you'll fi- I think you guys will find that there's some you know, potentially head-scratching things in this text. Um, that being said, I really do want to spend most of our time this morning kind of looking at a, at a kind of bigger picture of what, what Peter's doing in this text. And I want us to try to not, not get sidetracked into all that stuff, at least this morning. And I think, friends, for all the potential challenges that, you know, might come about through this text, when we take it as a whole, I think it's actually really straightforward. And I think it's actually really, really encouraging. And so I hope that we see that. I, I, wanna, I want you guys to see that today as we walk through it. And I think um, if I had to give you a main idea for this chapter, you know, 1 Peter chapter 3, I think it would be this. God is glorified in our lives when our secure hope of salvation frees us to fearlessly honor others. So let me say that again for you note takers. God is glorified in our lives when our secure hope of salvation frees us to fearlessly honor others. Now, in order to see this, uh, I think we can spend our time kind of dividing our text up really into two main sections. Uh, so, again, if we look, you know, at the beginning verses one through twelve, what we're going to see is really Peter's just going to continue to unpack this idea of uh, honoring others. And so, Peter's main point here in our first section is really the same one that we looked at the end of chapter two last week, and that's this, God is glorified in our lives when we fearlessly honor others. So you see that's similar to the main idea of the whole text. But with that in mind, we're also gonna see in the second half, in in verses 13 through 33, Peter is gonna end this chapter, he's gonna move from these examples that he's giving us to conclude with some statements about why we can and should glorify God this way. And I think we can summarize this this last section like this Christians can and should fearlessly honor others because we have a secure hope of salvation so you know when you take those two things together those are our two main points this morning and uh, again that first one God is glorified in our lives when we fearlessly honor others and that's going to cover verses 1 through 12 and then verses 13 through 33 Christians can and should fearlessly honor others because we have a secure hope of salvation so point number one as we look at verses 1 through 12 and we consider this uh, part of our text this morning if you'll remember back to chapter 2 as I've already kind of hinted at Peter ends by giving us uh, some examples of who we are to honor or who who honors and in, in what way they honor and if you'll remember Daniel kind of walked us through that we saw these really these two examples of the government the government you know, we are to honor those who are in positions of authority in the government. And then, we're to, and then servants are to honor their masters. And so you, you have this, um, this theme there that really it's about honoring those who are in positions of authority over us. So Peter's really wanting us to see that, that honor really has to do with how we treat those who kind of have power over us. And so he's going to continue that on this morning, really uh, in verses 1 through 7. And he's going to, first of all, apply that idea to marriage. So we're going to see him deal with the, the issue of marriage. And I think when we look at his, his commands to both husbands and wives in verses 1 through 7, really what I think Peter's saying is that husbands and wives honor each other by living out God's good design for marriage, right? And so what does that look like for wives? Well, if, you, if you've looked at these verses or if you're looking at them now, you can see starting in verse 1, um, probably already noticed, many of you, that Peter says that for wives, honoring their husband is being subject to them. Now, I'm not sure, you know, when you hear that, I don't know how, how, that, how, how that sounds to your ears. I know, you know, we can have all kinds of thoughts and feelings about what does it mean for a, for a wife to be subject to her husband. I would just say, is that it doesn't say uh, women be subject to all men, right? He says, now wives be subject to your own husbands. So that's an important clarification to start off. But I think, you know, particularly this statement, it's not popular with my generation. Just, you know, you probably know that. And I don't know that it's ever been particularly, you know, a a hugely popular statement. Um, It's always got its controversies, and we can always take it wrong directions. But I think probably just good for us to stop here and consider what Peter means and just really ask, what, what does this look like for Peter? And I think we just briefly look at this this section, he gives us a few hints uh, about what this looks like. So first, we kind of see in verse 2, he describes this this submission as a a kind of respectful and pure conduct. Then in verse 4, you see that he describes it as an internal and imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. And then, of course, in verses 5 and 6, he describes the submission of the, the holy women of old, particularly Sarah, and here Peter says a lot of interesting things about submission that I think we should look at. And first of all, I think, you know, he describes it as, as a way in which these women adorned themselves. You know, in other words, he's comparing it to, to jewelry or to clothing. And he kind of already started that off in three and four. Um, and his point here, I think, is that, um, you know, wives, you, you win your husbands and you, you bless them and you honor them, not, not so much by how you dress or the way you, you try to gain their affection through, through your appearance, but you win them by your, you know, as Peter says, your, the lasting beauty of your submission. And I think that's a, that's a pretty beautiful picture that he has there. And, and, of course, he compares this to Sarah's obedience to Abraham, um, which is interesting. Uh, he gives us this example, all right, of, of Sarah calling Abraham Lord. Um, and, and if you go back, really, and look in the Old Testament, there's actually only one example of uh, Sarah ever using the term Lord to refer to Abraham. And what's really interesting is that it's a pretty mundane example. So, in fact, in, it's from Genesis 18:12, and, and if you read it, she's not even talking to Abraham when she says this. She's uh, actually listening in on a conversation that he's having. And to herself, she kind of laughs and she calls him Lord as she's referring to, uh, you know, this promise that he's been given. And I think... You know, look, I'm not saying, uh, you know, wives, go home this afternoon and make sure next week you've called your husband Lord. You know, that's, that's not what I'm saying. But I think what Peter does want us to see is that I think, you know, even in the most mundane circumstances and even on her own by herself, Sarah displays this kind of default posture of honor and respect towards Abraham. And I think that's really important as we try to kind of get a, a grasp on what he's getting at here. So I think if you take all of these different examples together and, and try to kind of make a picture here, I think what Peter's saying, uh, wives, is that more than anything else, submission's not about any one particular, particular action that you do or don't do. It's more about the, the character and the posture of your heart towards your husband. So how do you view your husband? Do you, do you generally have this desire to want to see your husband lead in a, in a good and healthy way? And when he doesn't, do you how do you respond to that? Is it with you know, frustration and anger? Or is it still with that desire to want to see him lead well? I think that's kind of what Peter's getting at here. So one pastor uh, puts it this way. Submission is the divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and help carry it through according to her gifts. And I think that's, friends, that's exactly what Peter's getting at here. Uh, women are to honor their husbands and thus glorify God by affirming the leadership of their husbands and doing all that they can to support that leadership. Well, what about husbands? If wives are called to submit to the leadership of their husbands, how are husbands called to honor their wives? Well, Peter gives considerably less time to exhorting us husbands as he does the wives. We get one single verse. But I think his command is crucial nonetheless He says we are to live with our wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. And although Peter is not calling us to be subject to our wives, men, he does, in fact, exhort us to honor them. And I think that's really important. Now, I don't want to get bogged down in this, but I think the gist of what Peter is telling us, men, is that a godly husband never leads with contempt. He never leads harshly but rather a godly husband recognizes that he has a responsibility to lead his wife thoughtfully, caringly, and of course gently. He recognizes all the ways his wife is different from him, and yet he seeks to communicate and to cooperate with her and to affirm her as she is. Yet he also recognizes that even though she's different, she is equal with him. She is a co-heir of eternal life. So men, consider whether or not what Peter says here describes you. Do you lead this way? Do you love your wife like this? Do you honor her with your leadership? Or do you use it for your own gain? If you call yourself a Christian, I hope you honor your wife this way. And finally, with with these exhortations in view, Peter's going to shift. Now, if you'll see in verses 8 through 12. And he's going to continue to give us uh, just some examples of what this looks like to honor others But he's going to open it up now, and he wants us to really just see how this, what this looks like for all of us, you know, as Christians. How do we honor each other and all people at all times, regardless of the circumstances? And, you know, he gives a number of commands here, and we could summarize them, actually, I think with a really uh, well-known statement, and it's this, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Does it sound familiar? Yeah, It should. It really, and it's not that surprising that this is really what Peter's saying, right? Because I think in so many ways, this chapter and really this whole book, it's Peter's way of teaching his readers what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, right? It's the same thing that Jesus, of course, says when he is asked to summarize the Law and the Prophets, and he says, love your neighbor as yourself. That's what Paul's getting, or Peter's getting at here when he commands us to have unity of mind and sympathy, brotherly love, and a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you are called. So I think the root idea in this case is that, you know, as Christians we're called to humbly honor everyone, Christian or non-Christian, when people are nice to us or not, we're called to treat them the way that we would want to be treated. Of course, Paul in Philippians 2 puts it this way, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And, friends, that's I think what Peter's getting at here, right? We're called to honor others by humbly and selflessly blessing them, regardless of, of what it costs us. But notice what he says there in verses 9 through 12. He says that. When we do this, it's actually pleasing to God. When we honor others by doing good to them, especially if we suffer for it, then God is pleased. Of course, that's why he's quoting Psalm thirty-four, twelve through 16 there. And that's what that is. He wants us to see, I think, if we honor people in this way, we have favor with God. It pleases him. But if we don't love people like this, then, friends, I think what Peter also warns us there by using the, using that verse is that we might be in danger of having God as our enemy. Well, why is that? I think John puts it best in in 1 John 4 when he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. I think it's the same thing, thing that Peter's kind of driving at here. If we say we've been born again and yet we don't love others like this, I think we have to examine ourselves and ask if Christ is really in us. So let's, let's take these examples to heart, right? Let's take back into the examples he gave there, the, the examples here. I think the overall posture that Peter shows us is that we are called as Christians who live in this world to honor others. And when we do that, it's glorifying to God. So now we're going to transition to the, to the latter section here. And I think as we do that, you know, if, if most of us are honest, you know, we've been talking about loving people this way. And I, I think, you know, Christian or not, we would all say we, we try to do good to other people. We want to honor others. You know, I don't know many sane people who wouldn't say that they try to do that. But I think for many people and really many of us, uh, our willingness to honor and bless and do good to others, it really kind of goes so far as, we're able to get that in return, right? You know, we're, we'll, we'll stick our neck out for somebody, but I think the second they take advantage of us, often we're kind of done, right? But friends, I think that's what Peter is trying to call us away from, you know, in these two chapters. He wants us to see, I think, that our new identity as Christians and our assurance of salvation, it ought to free us to love people in a way that's totally different from the way the world loves and that's precisely how he's going to close out our chapter this morning. So as we consider these last few verses, I want you to see that Peter is, is going to take all of these commands that he's just given us, and he's going to ground it in really two simple but really important realities. And these two realities really give us the motivation and the understanding as far as how we can actually do this. So first we see in verses 13 through 17, Peter's going to show us that we can honor others and even more so we honor God. Why? Because if God is for us in Christ, we have nothing and no one to fear. Right? So who is there to harm you if you are zealous for doing good, Peter says. You know, the implication here is that God certainly isn't against you if you seek to do good to others. As he said back in chapter 2, it's a gracious and favorable thing if in God's sight, when you're mindful of God, you suffer for doing good. Therefore, we ought to be fearless and bold in our willingness to glorify God, knowing that God is on our side. And of course, Peter says here that one of the ways we do that is by sharing the gospel with others. You look there in verses 14 and 15, have no fear of them, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Friends, what Peter is saying is we ought to treat others, especially those who oppose us, with such a distinct love and honor that they notice that something is different about us, right? Something's different about the way we love. And Peter says when they see that, they'll ask us, about it. And we ought to be eager to share the gospel with them with boldness and confidence and yet with kindness. You know, I think, I hope you know you can't argue someone into believing the gospel, right? You know, sadly, I think far too many Christians think the way to defend the faith or, pers- or persuade others is just to sort of beat them over the head with the facts of, of the faith, right? Uh, But, friends, Peter's telling us that's not the way we defend the faith. You know, remember, everything he's been telling us, we glorify God how? By honoring those, especially those who are opposed to us. So, yes, friends, while I hope we're all eager to share the gospel, we're ready to do so, and we're passionate about it, let's do it with gentleness and respect, right? So, I see these verses that uh, we can honor others because God is on our side. Therefore, no one can stand against us. As Paul said, if God is for you, then who can be against you? Now, I know I said earlier there are a lot of, you know, really challenging statements, and um, don't worry, because I've sort of saved the best two for last. Uh, Well, really, Peter has. But like I promised you early, my goal is really not to get too bogged down in some of these statements. So, honestly, in a lot of ways, I'm I'm gonna just sort of tell you what it says, and and I think you know again, if you have questions tonight, I'd love to talk more about that with you. With that said, I I think these are without a doubt these last few verses, some of the hardest verses in the New Testament. I'll just say that straight up. You know, the the great reformer Martin Luther said he had no idea what these meant, these verses meant. Um, and friends. I know I'm going to run the risk of kind of sounding like I'm going to give you a Sunday school answer here. But I actually think Peter's point in this section is sort of difficult as it seems is actually really simple. And I think it's this. What Peter's saying in a nutshell here in these last few verses is that it's the gospel itself which ultimately strengthens us to honor others even in the midst of suffering. Right. So look in verse 18 First of all, Peter says, we know that Christ also suffered. In other words, I think Peter's point here is that the very attitude that he's calling us to is the very same attitude that Christ himself had when he willingly suffered at the hands of sinful men. And of course, if you're a Christian, then you and I were saved precisely because Christ was willing to suffer this way, right? So the gospel ought to serve, Peter says, as a reminder and an example to all of us of what it looks like to suffer while doing good. But there's more to it than that, because Peter doesn't just want to put the gospel forward as an example, he also wants us to see that the gospel itself is what gives us the very security and the assurance that we need to be able to glorify God this way. Because if we continue on through the rest of the verses, I think what we see is that Peter's going to show us that first of all, you know, look, look at how Peter traces this path of of Christ's glorious work, right? In verse 18, we see that Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. We see that he was put to death in the flesh, made alive in the spirit. In verse 19, we see that Christ, in his resurrection, was both vindicated and triumphed over the very spirits who opposed God in the days of Noah, And finally, in verse 22, Peter says that Christ has ascended to heaven and now rules at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers being subjected to him. So you can see that Peter's following this path, right, from suffering to glory of Christ. But he wants us to see something else. He wants us to see that if we've trusted in Christ, his path is our path, right? In order to show us that, down there in verse 20, we see that he makes this uh, rather strange allusion to noah and his family having been brought safely through the flood waters of god's judgment and even stranger in the next verse he says that noah's salvation in the ark corresponds with or symbolizes our own baptism in which we too have been saved not as a removal of dirt from the body but as an appeal to god for a good conscience through the resurrection of jesus christ well friends as potentially Confusing as this might seem, this is what I think Peter's getting at. I think what he's trying to get us to see is that just as Noah and his family were carried safely through the waters of God's judgment, if we've been united to Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection through faith, all of which, of course, is symbolized by baptism, then we too will be safely carried through the waters of suffering and And through the storms in this life. Now maybe you're with us this morning and you're not a Christian. And if that's the case, I want to just stop here and plead with you. Friend, carefully consider what Peter says here about Jesus and Noah. When Peter talks about Jesus' suffering for the sins of the unrighteous, I want you to know he's not just talking about us Christians. He's talking about you too. You're unrighteous just like us. You see, the Bible says that you were made by God to glorify his character. But like us, you have rebelled. You live your life not to please God, but yourself. And friend, what Peter wants you to see is that unless you repent of your sins and put your trust in Christ, just like Noah trusted in the ark, then you will perish like those who drowned in the sea of God's judgment. And friend, don't wait to do that. You see how Peter says that God's patience waited in the days of Noah. You know God's patience has been patient with you too. But don't scorn that patience. It will come to an end. So today is the day of salvation. Repent and believe. Friends, I hope you see in this text that God is glorified in our lives when we fearlessly honor others. And I hope you see that we can and should honor others because we have a secure hope of salvation. Pray with me. Father, we are thankful for everything that you have done for us in Christ. Father, we're thankful that through faith we can be united in a death like his and raised to life just as he was. We're thankful for that secure hope. And God, we pray that that hope would compel us to live holy lives that honor you this week. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.